Today's episode is brought to you by Pale Horse Media Co. Head on over to www.palehorsemedia.co for more of your favorite shows, books, and merch. I have two brand new releases for you over at Pale Horse Media Co. The first one, In His Name, My First Dive Into Fiction. It is just a fun, cool thriller if you're into that kind of sort of thing. And and we have the second expanded edition of the original, of the OG Safety Sucks, the bullshit and the safety profession they don't tell you about. I go through, I expand on some thoughts, add some bonus material, reflect on some of the chapters. So if either of those sound like things you should be interested in, again head over to www.palehorsemedia.co CO or find them on your Amazon marketplace. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for all of your support of the books of the podcast of the merch store of everything. It truly means the world to us. This, this, this show is brought to you by safety FM. Today's episode is brought to you by obscured the pursuit of of Radical Self-Acceptance, my second book. Go check it out at obscuredbook.com for more. You can pick up a copy of Obscured, Safety Sucks. You can tune into the new, latest and greatest podcast that we have. Really, I guess I'll say effing, effing scary stories. Really effing scary stories. All over at Pale Horse Media Co. Head over to palehorsemediaco.com. That's P-A-L-E horsemediaco.com for publishing, indie books, podcasts, and more. Hello! Howdy! Hi, everybody. Sam Goodman, the hop nerd. Dragging that one out a little bit. How do you like that one? I extended that. We'll call it the the extended intro, the extended edition. How are you doing today? I hope you were doing awesome. We are coming to you from the sunny and the beautiful downtown Phoenix, Arizona, here at the Hop Nerd Studios. And I guess I've got to say that it's not technically just the hot nerd studios anymore because most of you that follow along have seen that we're doing uh, this whole thing with this new podcast called really uh i guess i'll keep it pg-13 uh, really effing scary story so you can figure out effing i think pretty pretty easily but it's a really fun podcast so it's it's happening so make sure you go check that out you can go check that stuff out over at palehorsemediaco.com it's a fun thing for me because we're getting to do all kinds of super cool stuff. Like we're going on a haunted road trip that, that it looks like it's going to be, well, if this is out in September, so it should be out in September. Um, we'll say a haunted road trip in September. We're going to do three stops and we're going to bring them to you live. So there's actually a place over at pellhorsemediaco.com where you can go sign up for one or all of these three nights where we're going to be broadcasting to you from some super haunted Maybe haunted, if you believe in that. Paranormally active locations, I, I guess. I, I don't know what to call it. But it's going to be fun. You're going to get to watch us live and ask questions and have fun and participate, which is always fun. But the, the most funnerest part, the funnerest part of this, is that you're going to get to watch us get scared to death. So it'll be a lot of fun. So make sure you check that out. Um, I've got a book out, as you know. So go check that out, too. Head over to Obscured 
book.com. It's available on Amazon, all those places. You can find it over on Paleworks Media Co. You can find it pretty much anywhere on any of the websites. Do me a favor, do all the social media stuff because I haven't ranted at you about this for a while. Head over to www.thehopner.com. Make sure you check out hopuniversity.org. You can get a hold of me through all of those platforms for anything safety better. I am here to help you. So make sure you go check out all of that stuff. I greatly appreciate it. And if you're not following on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, all those different pages, anything that I talk about pretty much has a page or something associated with it. So it's always awesome when you go like, love, subscribe, interact, all that kind of sort of stuff. When you go and you share this podcast or you tell somebody about this podcast, it helps us a ton into helping to continue to bring you this super amazing, awesome content. So thank you for all that you do to keep us going here at the Hot Nerd, at Pell Horse Media Co., at all the stuff that we've got going on, which is all kinds of cool stuff, right? So again, make sure you tune into all that. But let me jump into what we've got going on today because I've, I've kind of I've led this monologue on for quite a bit now. Um, I don't know. I've just I've missed you guys. I, I know that's probably weird as I'm just sitting here talking alone into my microphone. Um, but as we kind of switch the schedule back to just two episodes a week, I, I feel like I'm not getting to to scream into your ear holes as much. So I'm just taking a few extra minutes to say hello, howdy, hi. I love all of you. I hope you're all doing well wherever you find yourself. So now we can officially, we can officially jump into what we've got going on today. And I'm assuming by whatever great title that I I come up with for this episode, that you're going to know that we're going to be hanging out with Adam Johns. So this was just an awesome podcast, and I'm not going to dive into too much of what we talked about. If you're not following along with Adam Johns, make sure you go check him out on LinkedIn, all of that kind of sort of stuff. He's always got uh, really neat articles and content that he's published over there. Um, I'm kind of browsing through his LinkedIn page as we're sitting here recording. Um, And I will say this, it is not John Adams, so uh, my bad, uh, my bad Adam, that... (laughs) The first emails, my dyslexia kicked in and I called him John Adams. So there's there's my little secret out. He is definitely not the second president of the United States. Well, I, I guess he could be the second or the sixth if you're going for John Q. Adams, right? So he could be the the second or the sixth, uh, but he is neither. He's, he's, he's not a U.S. president. Uh, and that's that. So I'll just shut up and we're going to jump right into this thing and have a ton of fun. Here we go. Uh, let people know who you are, all that kind of stuff, what you do. Yeah, so Adam Johns, I'm uh, kind of from a, a flight safety background. That's how I, I got into this world. Um been working for a, a few airlines and a and regulator over the last sort of 10, 11 years of my career. Um, recently returned back to the UK after a four and a bit year stint in Hong Kong, um, which was uh, interesting timing to... Uh, you know, move back halfway across the world and, and resign during a pandemic, mm. uh, which obviously wasn't part of the plan. And so that's that's um, left me where I am now, which is um, having spent the last few months in the UK, just sort of trying to figure out what the next step is, really. So for all of uh, um, all of us kind of more, I don't want to say normal safety nerds, but non-flight safety nerds out here. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what exactly does that entail? What what is a flight safety specialist for all those safety folks out there that, that aren't aware? So, I mean, if you, if you have any familiarity with an airline, it's an incredibly complex organization. 
Um, and if you just think about the frontline work, you've got pilots, you've got cabin crew, you've got engineers, you've got ground handlers, you've got airport staff, and then obviously you've got everybody in the office. When it comes to safety, you know, that is a huge diversity of operational work and therefore a huge diversity of, of stuff going on. Uh, so my, my role is, in my previous roles, has been to basically help airlines to manage their operational risks, but across the board. So I've never, although my main interest is in the flight side, I've never kind of specialised and said, you know, I'm specifically looking after this part of, of safety. It's more about the general process of helping organisations and airlines in particular to better understand the risks they face and, and manage them. But, you know, I, in my previous role, I could have spent the morning talking about um, something to do with, very technical to do with flight operations. Uh, you know, maybe it's changing a procedure or changing a checklist item or something like that. And then in the afternoon, I'm meeting with a, a bus contractor who provides us with commuter services and everything in between. So I mean, one, one thing I love about it is that it's just so diverse. You're not you're not just focusing on one type of operational work all day. You're you're looking at everything, and it's just it's just fascinating. And obviously, aviation itself is quite a sexy industry to yeah. to be in. So, is that uh, was 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 that the dream as a young man looking at aviation? You wanted to wanted to move towards aviation because I think, yeah. as you said, I, I think every little boy at some point looks at an airplane and goes, "I want to uh, I want to fly that thing." <laughs> yeah, it's actually it's interesting. I think the first time I realized I was kind of a bit of a nerd about aviation was because um, my mum's a travel agent. We used to do a lot of overseas travel back in, in the 90s. And a lot of that was travel to the US. Yeah. used to fly on United Airlines. They used to have these um, classic 747s. And obviously, this was a time when you could still go in the flight deck and visit the captain and, and have a chat. And when you're like a six-year-old boy and you walk into a flight deck and there's so many buttons and switches and you're just like, wow, this is amazing. This is what I want to do. So my, my dream was always to be a pilot, um, which I think, you know, especially for boys back then was, you know, was a pretty common thing. But rather than it just be kind of like a, a childhood dream, I kind of carried it through all the way into my teens and, and into university. So, it, you know, safe, m m like most people in safety, safety was never the dream. Um, but when I was at university, I ended up doing a, a dissertation on a safety topic. And that kind of made me think, well, maybe I actually prefer this rather than just flying. So I decided to go into the safety route. Um, but I guess in, in, a, in a sense, it's, it's a totally different entry into safety than if you're in a more traditional industry like manufacturing or construction, because you don't go through the traditional uh, qualification, certification training. It's, it's about aeroplane safety and aviation, for better or worse, has kind of, over time, um, isolated itself in terms of the way it does safety and thinks about it from other industries. And um, perhaps we could we could talk a bit about that. But it's um, it means yeah. that you don't kind of get into the whole behavior based safety conversation and what's the better theory and that kind of thing. Yeah. And I, I, th I think that's a good place to go, because. Um, for the folks in and around aviation that I've chatted with, we kind of, we, we have some, um, some similarities because I, I grew up in the, in the nuclear generation space and we kind of went down the same, same, same kind of path of we isolated ourselves from every other industry. And at some point, uh, 
I don't think anyone ever, I don't think the industry outright said this, but became the gold standard of what a lot of, what, what a lot of safety programs um, looked like. Uh, and we're just now seeing that um, get to the point of maybe not being so great because of the isolation, right? We, yeah. we kind of went stale. Um, I'm no longer in nuclear generation. I'm still in power generation and, and in utilities. Um, but it just seeing even kind of our, our, these utility companies in, in the space that are a little less regulated than the nuclear side uh, into kind of fossil generation and other producers, having the ability to pick up and get a little more creative with their safety programs as compared to what's been kind of locked in in that vacuum of the nuclear world uh, has been pretty interesting. So I think that that would be a great, a great path to go. And I think I, I, let me open up with that. Um, let's start with the bad stuff. What has that, uh, what has that isolation done on the not so great side of safety for, for aviation? I think unfortunately as an industry, it, it, uh, this is a sweeping generalization, but my experience is that people tend to only speak to other people within the industry. And therefore what that's done, and it sounds very similar to, to what, what, what you just described in nuclear, is that there are, there's sort of no fresh thinking and new ideas coming in. Yeah. Uh, and the moment I started looking outside of the aviation industry about six or seven years ago, and looking more into occupational health and safety and, and, and not necessarily HARP or safety too, but just sort of general discussions around ways of doing safety that weren't specifically aviation. I started to see that there's maybe some gaps here between how aviation has developed in its thinking about safety and how other industries are going off in not different directions, but maybe they've just kind of gone a step further, um, whether it's around people or whether it's around human factors. Um, and I think partly it's because aviation had to grow up very fast as an industry because, you know, if you have an accident, that's big news in the media. Right. And whereas other industries maybe haven't had to grow up so fast. So aviation kind of stormed ahead and ended up kind of feel, thinking that it was the best industry in many respects. And you had kind of like healthcare coming in and saying, can you teach us about checklists and, right. and things like that and safety culture and aviation was sort of like, yeah, great, you know, we're, we're, we're the best and we'll tell you what to do. Um, but then that's led to this quite insular focus. So only learning from what goes on within the industry rather than looking at, you know, different industries and where maybe accidents have happened or things like that and trying to learn more broadly. Yeah. The, uh, the, there's that, that, Bring so true with me just because of the utility focus that I've had for the majority of my career as well is, is it sounds just strikingly similar because we find ourselves in these situations where we go, we're a very innovative and forward thinking organization. Let's go out and see what our peers are doing. And then we'll just do exactly what they're doing. Hmm. Right. <laughs> and we don't look outside of that space. Um, we, we go on these kind of uh, benchmarking boondoggles in the utility world. Um, especially in the nuclear space, we go benchmark other nuclear plants to see exactly what they're doing and compare that to what we're doing. And we kind of take the good that we like, but we never look outside of our own industry. As you said, uh, we're starting to see some evolution, I believe, past that now as we start to realize that there's a lot to learn um, from aviation, from manufacturing, from healthcare. For, there's, you can pull this stuff from, from everywhere. It's a buffet, right? You should, you should sample yeah. a, little, <laughs> a little from everywhere. Um, what would uh, what would you say would be some of the good stuff with with that kind of uh, storming ahead? Because again, for me, it was this it was kind of the same. 
um, in the nuclear world, it's, it's, it's kind of the same conundrum, right? Uh, if we have a problem, it affects a lot of people, right? We, uh, I'm, I'm exactly 55 miles from Palo Verde Nuclear Generating Station here where I'm sitting right now. Uh, and if Palo Verde had a major problem, Phoenix wouldn't exist for the uh, next little bit, <laughs> at least a few lifetimes. Yeah. So um, it, that does lead to kind of a hyper focus on how we keep that stuff from happening or at least minimize some of that impact, which is probably a good thing. Um, but what, what would you say would be some of the good stuff there? I think human factors would be an area where at least, maybe not in, in the most recent times, but certainly if you go back to the 80s and 90s, um, the industry was very quick to adopt the work of James Reason, who at the time was obviously one of the most the foremost thinkers in this in this space. So they kind of really latched onto that, introduced you know, crew resource management, uh, other aspects around design and human factors. So I think that's definitely an area where aviation's done well. Um, and I think to a certain extent, not having that kind of link so much to the occupational health and safety world and lost time injuries and lost day rates and things like that, that not being as an important metric kind of meant that it didn't get swallowed up by that whole conversation and, and that hyper-focus on on injuries so most of the most of the, the performance measurements in aviation are more about they are more system measures so you know when we're when we're looking at you know having you know monthly safety meetings as, as you have to have you know, you're looking at how the system is performing much more than you're focusing on individual events because you know a pilot for instance or a flight crew they it's obvious that they're operating in a very complex context-rich environment and therefore anything that happens you you can't ignore the context whereas if you're just focusing on an injury um then it you know it tends to be a lot easier to then start focusing on last time injury rates and lost day rates and things like that which it's interesting that you bring that up because it's we take occupational safety uh, and it's one of the very few areas in our lives that we take in and with that individual when we have a problem and that individual is injured, right? And we say, oh, all that context stuff doesn't matter now. It's very black or white, right? It's the only investigation that we'll perform where we'll say context doesn't matter. It's it's the only scientific endeavor that will go on and say context doesn't matter. It's fine. They just made a poor choice and, and that's, that's why the bad thing happened. So I think it's really interesting that you get on that path because, um, you know, it's it's kind of the opposite in I'll say uh, the normal world outside of aviation, right? where we're not focused as much on maybe massive catastrophe, right? We're not, we're not driving into kind of this instant um, catastrophic event. We're more focused on the individual worker. And with that comes a long list of not so great side effects. And you just mentioned a few of them that are thorns in my side, which are instant rates and this hyper focus on instant rates and driving down instant rates. And um, obviously here we focus heavily on OSHA recordables, right? What is an OSHA recordable injury and how can we manage that number down? And it is exactly that. I, I won't, I won't mince words. Companies just manage that number down more than, <laughs> more than anything else. Um, it's just another, another metric to manage. But in the meantime, we're most companies and you can look at the department of labor statistics here in the States and see that we've gotten really good at managing down those back sprains and muscle pulls and this and that and the other. And we kill people consistently at the same rate, right? It's, we don't really do a great job of driving that down, um, which I think is obviously not that good. <laughs> of a thing. Yeah. 
It's interesting you, you talk about catastrophic um, risk there. Mm-hmm. I think that's probably, you know, just to go back to your previous question about the positive sides that aviation has, has developed is because planes crashing is quite scary and, and quite expensive and, and, and very sad and tragic, um, there is a hyper-focus on avoiding catastrophic risk. So again, and, and you know, you don't really even need to apologize for it. Most of the resource in an airline is focused on avoiding aircraft accidents, not on avoiding um, personal injury. Right. Now, obviously, you don't you don't want people to get injured, and you know, cabin crew, for instance, is is an area where you can you can get you know, high, very high numbers of high conse- high sorry very high numbers of high likelihood low consequence events. Mm-hmm. So, kind of manual handling or burns and scolds, things like that. Sure. Um, and that doesn't need to be addressed. But c- compared to an aircraft falling out of the sky, it, it pales into insignificance. So, you know, you do you do end up spending the vast majority of your resource and your time talking about and trying to manage catastrophic risk rather than individual risk. Well, now, I think it's really interesting because you're breaking them apart into two separate things, mm-hmm. right? And, and that's one of the, uh, no pun intended, one of the fatal flaws that we have kind of in general industry here in the States and that, that I'll speak to mm-hmm. in utilities is we don't view those things as separate, right? Mm-hmm. We don't, we don't, we don't view our catastrophic and fatal events as different than our sprain, strain, scrapes and anything else. We're still kind of operating under this, this, this general premise that if we get rid of little stuff, then big, bigger things won't happen. And then if those bigger things don't happen, then you don't get to, to serious injuries. And if you don't get serious injuries then you don't have fatalities. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's obviously kind of, out the window, right? We know that's not, not how things actually occur. Um, what would you have to say to those folks that are still operating under that, that general premise? That's, 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 that's kind of like saying that would be, that would be like me coming to you and saying, well, those scolds and burns from your cabin crew will eventually lean to a, lead to a down plane. <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. And, and, and you can't really draw that logical conclusion, can you? Right. No. Um, I, I probably wouldn't go as far as to say that, um, you know, trying to manage the small stuff won't, uh, help you to prevent the, the the big stuff, but I would say that it's it's very unlikely that there's a link there. Right. Um, so yeah, I mean, people talk about focus on the on the weak signals and and um, you know keep an eye on the small things, but I think it's a, it's important to separate the fact that yes, we do need to still look at the small things, but it's probably unlikely in most cases that managing those small things will help you to avoid the big thing. Right. Typically the the sort of failure path of the small things is different to the failure path of the big things. So I'd say you you do generally need to keep them separate, but I wouldn't say it's absolutely exclusive in all cases that managing the small stuff won't help you because a lot of the the principles are the same. And some of the more, I guess, and I'm not going to use the words safety culture, um, but some, but obviously culture generally, some of the cultural interventions you might make into the system to address a process or operational safety issue could quite easily address an occupational safety issue and vice versa. So they're not totally mutually exclusive, but there is some significant differences in terms of big stuff, small stuff. Yeah. And that that's, I've heard it put this way many times that, you know, the stuff that typically hurts us is not the stuff that kills us. Right. It's usually, usually something quite different. Um, You mentioned it. So I've got to ask, What's the beef with the word safety culture? I just don't, I just don't <laughs> think talking about 
I mean, I don't particularly like talking about safety and isolation anyway. So to talk about a culture of safety and isolation just doesn't make sense to me. Um, We can talk about things like just culture, um, learning culture, informed culture, but then bringing it all together and badging it as safety culture doesn't really make sense to me. Um, the, The only decent definition I've ever really heard of safety culture is from Stephen Chirock, who I'm sure you you know. And he said, it's basically how organizations, teams or individuals make trade-off decisions between safety and other competing goals. And that's the only really decent definition that I've ever heard. But I'd much prefer to just talk about organizational culture rather than safety culture. Because I just think it's it's been talked about so much. No one can define it very well. And I, I just don't think it adds value to the conversation to use that label. Yeah, I like it. I think we just became best friends because I, I, I'm 100% <laughs> with it. And I, I, that's 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 where I go because that's a uh, that's something that I still hear quite a bit, and it's, it's just become a buzzword. It's become a, a word for consultants to throw on some type of analysis and say, "Well, your problem here is your safety culture," right? <laughs> It really means nothing, and what we're talking about uh, is just our overall culture, right? I, again, I'm, I'm with you. I don't, I don't like, like this kind of driving down into this safety-specific culture because you can't define it. It's just a buzzword, and it's just kind of meaningless. It's not something that you can actually work on, anyways. It's part of the kind of the greater macro culture of the organization as it is. So I just had to ask because I, I, there's 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 some folks that cling to that and they they hold on to that word so tight. They like it. They like it so much. So I like for folks to hear some of the reasoning behind why. Maybe well, I think best choice. If, you're to, if you're going to use safety culture as the term, then you need to define safety. Right. Um, that's an, that's another conversation, right? Mm-hmm. Um, everyone has their own definition. You know, you, you ask a hundred safety professionals to give you their definition of safety culture, they'll give you two hundred definitions. Exactly. Yeah. Same thing with safety. So, and that's there's nothing wrong with that per se. You know, it doesn't need to be. You know, a, you know we don't all have to use the same de- definition. For instance, the way that the way that Todd Conklin describes it isn't necessarily the, exactly the same way that I would describe it. Right. Um, so, you know, everyone can have different definitions um, as long as we are aware that you're using by using that word, you mean that, and I mean this, and then we can have a conversation. Right. So you 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 just kind of threw it in there uh, a while back, and you mentioned um, behavior based safety. Just just a, just a little smidge there. So let's 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 talk about that just just for a second. Yeah. Um, exactly. <laughs> Unfortunately, this is still an, an argument. But uh, go you, and as I'm sure you're aware, you can go browse through LinkedIn at any given moment, and you can find yeah. some arguments around around behavior based safety. Um, what? Because I'm I'm just I'm just unaware. Did behavior based safety ever creep into? aviation or did it creep in that much like it did everywhere else it seemed to just kind of permeate every other organization that at least i've been around um into this kind of you know fix people things get better that's just how life works kind of approach to behavior-based safety i think in my experience and my experience is isn't isn't vastly broad compared to, to some people but having worked for two airlines and a regulator the term behavior-based safety within those context has never come up Mm. i first uh, first learned of it by doing my own research beyond aviation um i would i would probably say that in some elements of the industry 
a behaviour-based safety programme has been implemented, but I would dare say that's probably more likely to have been done on the ground with engineers and mechanics or with ground handlers mm. as opposed to with airline operations on the, on the flight deck. Um, so, you know, talking about at-risk behaviours and, and things like that, um, unsafe acts, uh, didn't, in my experience, just didn't sort of make it into the, into the system, really. Yeah, I like it, and that's good. Good for you, <laughs> because most of us now are. That's, that's been a, that's a good portion of my day is trying to eradicate behavior based safety from from organizations. <laughs> so when when you say eradicate, are you talking about eradicate in the original theoretical sense, or eradicate in what is likely the misimplementation of it in most? It's, it's, it, it, it is in the bastardization of behavior-based safety. Um, I had on Dr. Tim Ludwig not that long ago, who actually uh, studied under Scott Geller and, and is a behaviorist. Um, and we have a lot of striking similarities, actually, in belief around uh, – I'd read his book. I don't have it laying around here. Um, and it was – I was reading it, and I didn't even realize that it was a behavior-based safety book. It was called Dysfunctional Practices. I was kind of starting to read it, and I'm like uh, – this guy's talking about hop, right? And I'm starting to <laughs> dig in a little bit more and I'm digging in a little bit more. And I'm like, this is not a behavior-based safety bug, <laughs> or at least not what I was expecting, not, not what I've been exposed to, what I've experienced in industry. And I think what, what, you, what you'll find with most of those folks, um, I haven't chatted with Scott Geller, so I can't speak for him, but I, could, I can draw an assumption here um, based off of speaking with, uh, with Dr. Tim, is that uh, that's mostly what we've seen in our industries is this kind of this gross bastardization of, of kind of what they were originally trying to do. Um, and that's a lot of what the conversation we had had several episodes back is, 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 is there any pieces where we can kind of come together? Uh, because there is some good in, in what they're talking about, right? Behavior obviously exists. It's there. It happens. Right. <laughs> and I think a lot of the, uh, the differing approach that, uh, that we've seen is really just organizations taking BBS, and it was marketed extremely well and so packaged and canned and, and sold uh, to the masses as an easy button that if you can just find and fix enough bad behaviors, at-risk acts, then you will eventually stop killing people. And that's how it was sold to, to, to many organizations. And, and one of the better parts uh, for any organization, because we love numbers and we love metrics and we love to measure everything, is I can give you a card. And you can bubble in all of these behaviors that you see. We can put that into the computer and I can give you a chart to tell you <laughs> what bad behaviors you have in your organization. And then you can go out and do stand downs and beat people and tell them to care more to make that number go down. It's so easy. It's awesome. <laughs> right? so that's the way that it was kind of sold to a lot of organizations. And that's the way that when I go out and I see behavior-based safety in practice, yeah. That's typically the way that I see it in practice in organizations. Not saying that some don't do it vastly different, yeah. um, but I would say at least about 80% of the time, that's how I, how I see it applied. Yeah. I mean, but if, I mean, if you go 10, 15 years down the line from now, you'll probably be able to say the same thing about HOP or right. safety or resilience engineering. Yeah. There will be poor implementation versus the original theory. Yeah. That, that's just going to happen. I think we're already seeing that now around just culture, right? I think it's it's something that's come up, these kind of flow charts of discipline. Culpability. Around, 
Right, exactly. The same thing. Well, you know, you can just draw these lines between different types of behavior. And again, remove context. That's the main point with a lot of this. Just take away context because that's just pesky context. (laughs) And then you just follow this super, this this super simple little chart and you know exactly what to do. And unfortunately, uh, I don't know. I just don't see life ever working that way, at least not working very well that way. Yeah, it's it's a big challenge. And I, I, I used to, because aviation kind of really took on board um, the culpability matrix, you know, and, the, and which mm-hmm. side of the line was this, was this act. That, that was something aviation has adopted. Yeah. Um, but the more, the more that I've kind of explored it, the more I just think that it, it doesn't add any value at all. Actually, the, the, more I, the more I kind of think about just culture, the more I think the, the, that right-hand side of just culture, you know, like yeah. but negligence, gross, you know, gross misconduct, yeah. etc. I don't think it adds any value. Well, you know, if, if you really get into that place of this kind of this kind of willful willful saboteur, right? You, you need to be calling the police and not a safety person, anyways. Yeah, right. We're, uh, we're, in, uh, we're in different territory. Yeah, it's an HR issue to begin right, with. Right, and exactly. It progresses to something beyond the organization, yeah. but when it comes to safety, it's about learning. Exactly. And it's literally, all it's about. And if, yeah. if 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 there's anything that needs to be done that's beyond learning, then give it to someone else. Yeah, because we don't want to be associated with it. Yeah, and I think to your point, even uh, before we before we kind of move past some of that just culture piece, to me, the way that I always share it is just this: is that no matter what, I mean, unless it was that situation where you have this this willful saboteur in your midst, you know that that it made complete and total sense until all of a sudden it didn't. Right, mm-hmm. that people do what makes sense to them at the time in the situation with what they see and smell and perceive and all of that stuff. And of course, after the fact, it's easy to take a chart and, and a behavior kind of go, well, I can see now why that wouldn't make sense. But to that person, I mean, I can put myself in that situation. I do stupid stuff all the time. I'm a person, right? And all that mm-hmm. stupid stuff makes perfect sense to me until all of a sudden it just doesn't anymore. And it's usually when I'm going, ow, that didn't make any sense. Right? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I always say to people when I'm talking about this sort of idea of sense-making and, and what's often called local rationality mm-hmm. is nobody in their right mind ever does anything that doesn't make sense to them. Right. Right. Well, we, we look back at this chain of events that usually leads to something not so great happening as if this person could have seen that, you know, step A, uh, do this, step B, do that, step C, cut off arm. Right. We look back with, with that clarity going, well, of course, why didn't they just stop before they cut off their arm? Because step C was cut off their arm. It makes total sense now. Uh, but again, it's, it's in that tunnel. That person does not see <laughs> that that's probably going to be the next logical step in that sequence. Um, I think it's really, uh, I think it's really interesting though, before we go too far past the behavior piece, um, even to, to lend to some of that, as I was chatting with uh, Dr. Tim Ludwig, and I, and I would encourage folks to go back and listen to that or, or go, go check out some of his work. It's just phenomenal. Um, where we really aligned between kind of that behaviorist side of stuff and, and hop was in and around the fact that uh, the behavior is not a choice, right? That the behavior is manifesting from the system. And again, back to the bastardization, that's not how most organizations adopted it. That's too kind of warm and fuzzy hippie kind of stuff. That's too California for most most organizations to adopt. Um, but that's where we really align more than anything else is viewing the behavior uh, as a symptom 
right? It's not the problem. And if you, if you go out and you treat the symptom with a card or with, with just coaching, uh, you're really not getting anywhere. You're just kind of knocking down the symptoms a little bit. And it's really digging into, he gives us really, really, really great, simple example in his book. And I won't give too much of it away. I'm just talking about ladders, right? If you have a bunch of people standing on buckets to change light bulbs, it's probably because you don't have enough ladders or they're hard to get to, right? It's, it's kind of that duh moment. Yeah. Right. But if we kind of went down at that, that old, that old path, it would have been stop standing on buckets or else rather than why are you standing on buckets to, to go directly to your point about learning. Right. Mm-hmm. The, the whole point is learning. And no matter, no matter which kind of theory we go down here, um, we're really getting back to the same point is how do we get to environments in which people can be honest and we can learn. Yeah. Yeah, I, I just want to pick up on something you said there about um, where you saw a connection between HARP and this more behaviorist approach sure. and this idea that the behavior is influenced by the system. Right. Um, I think an area that we need to bring, an area of science that we need to bring more into safety is sociology. Um, right. So obviously we've got a lot of psychology, we've got social psychology, but then it's sort of the next step is, sci- is sociology. Right. Um and a particular theory that I've become quite fond of recently is called structuration theory. And fancy name, but all it really means is that the structure or the system influences the agency of the people within that system, which then in itself influences the structure again. So the system influences the agency of people and the agency of those people and what they do then reinforces the structure. And that can be kind of like a negative loop or it can be a positive loop. Right. That led me to think about almost quite philosophically a dis- sort of a thought and a few discussions about de- determinism and free will. You know, and the idea that if you've got more of a view of determinism, then perhaps you're more focused on the system. If you've got a view of free will, perhaps you're more focused on the individual and the fact that they have total control over the decisions. My view is that it's somewhere in the middle. Yeah. The reality of human existence is that we don't have total determinism and we don't have total free will. We exist within structures that influence our decisions and our actions and the decisions and actions that we take reinforce or influence back to the structure. So every single decision that an agent or a person makes is going to change the system in some way. It might be a very, very small way. It might be a very, very big way but then that system is then going to influence their next decision. So I, I really do think that more bringing more sociology science into safety is, is going to be, you know, help us with the next step forward. I think you're spot on. I, I know that you're spot on. Um, and just bringing safety back towards science in general. Um, <laughs> I, I, I get in trouble a little bit because I, I, I advocate of moving safety away from religion and into science. Right, because safety as as applied has been applied almost as a religion rather than as a science, right? And I think to your point exactly is is how do we continue to grow towards something that is more scientific and less care more, be more, try harder. Uh, yeah, the, the traditional approaches. Here's here's the Bible of our organization, and we you cannot sin against that Bible or we'll crucify you. <laughs> right? Yeah, <laughs> and the beauty of safety as a as a um, as a science in its own right, is it's transdisciplinary. Mm-hmm. So it, it doesn't it say safety isn't a core science, um, but what it does is it help. It, it's a beautiful place to bring together hard physical sciences and soft kind of more humanities and, and social sciences and bring them together 
and and it's a great a kind of a great um, breeding ground, yeah. really, or a great testing ground for for mixing those two things together because you've got lots and lots of heavy stuff and big physical um, big big physical things, but then we've got lots of people, and these people work individually or they work as teams, and and you can mix it all together. Well, and I think it's interesting as we go go towards that and we start to. Um, begin to experiment. And that's been a, a dirty word in more of traditional approaches to health and safety is experimentation and creativity has not really been viewed as anything that's that great. Um, often we have found ourselves in, in, in uh, at least in, again, in the application of traditional safety of saying, well, we just really need to stay in compliance with what we know. We stay in compliance with what we know when bad things happen, we just need to double down harder on those traditional approaches and things will eventually get better. And if we just do the same thing harder, things will continue to get better. And that probably worked for a while, right? When we had, when we had these kind of meat grinders hanging out there that lobbed off arms and different things like that. Yeah, of course. Um, but when you get to the point that we're at now, doubling down on those more traditional approaches and not trying something different doesn't really seem to get us any farther. Um, yeah. It's, it's kind of, it's really going down that, that, that approach of, for me, I've, I've kind of been saying this around organizations is making creativity cool again. Like, that's okay to be creative. I think that's, that's probably a really good thing. Um, you know, we go out and we ask our employees to be amazing, adaptive problem solvers uh, with everything except for safety. Just follow the rules. Right. So it's, I think there's a lot to be said there as we go down that path of, of encouraging the creative side and, you know, creatively adapting to problems and figuring that stuff out. And we're still coming back to learning. That's ultimately where this conversation continues to circle back to is how we make sure that we can create an environment in which learning is possible. Yeah. These sort of what, what people call small safe to fail experiments are so mm-hmm. important in a, in a complex environment. You've used the word the uh, context four or five times already now, and, and it's a word that I, I use a lot as well. Um, the context is changing um, in the broader sense. So more technology, more uncertainty. Um, yeah. You know, the world is just moving at such a pace now that the things we use to try to gain some level of management over the world have to evolve as well. Um, and the only way to do that, in my in my view, is, as you just said, is to encourage more creativity and innovation on the front line because the organization in its management capacity cannot keep up. The, the procedures, the policies cannot keep up with the rate of change of the context and the environment in which that organization operates. Yeah. And, I, and I like to use the example of, of a regulator having worked for one the regulator cannot keep up with the industry. So as a regulator, if you set law, you know, you first start off with the law and you've got regulations and codes of practice and things like that, those tend to get set. And at least at the regulation level, and especially at the law level, can take a long time to change. Mm. Lots of, you know, bureaucracy, you're going up to, you know, lawmakers. So as the context continues to change at an almost exponential rate, the regulation isn't going to keep up. So what you have to do is design regulations which are performance and outcome-based rather than strictly prescriptive. You are always going to need some prescriptive stuff, but what you need is a, is a spectrum where over time more and more stuff is going to have to become more performance-based because you cannot expect a regulatory environment to keep up with the pace of change of industry and at the same time 
you can't really expect an organization's policies and procedures to keep up with the, the shifting context on the front line. So that's why you have to accept, encourage, and you know, just acknowledge that creativity, experimentation, innovation on the front line is just a necessity for a business to survive. And I'm not even talking about safety. No, no, exactly. I think that uh, in, you're exactly right. You know, um, when we see those situations, and I, we can all think to probably hundreds, if not thousands of those situations where uh, we can look at those procedures and understand in this, this really complex process, whatever it is, it's probably a really good spot to get kind of prescriptive, right? To kind of walk through this to-do list, checklist, whatever, work through this process. When I think to uh, kind of more of the utility space, I, what lockout tagout immediately comes to mind, you know, a situation in the application of lockout tagout. Um, but when you think about, I love, I love what you just said when we're talking about less prescriptive, more performance-based. And that's a conversation I've heard coming up in organizations in their procedural development, just in general. Mm-hmm. How do we declutter this process? Where do we need to be prescriptive? And everywhere else, let's, let's give some leeway here. Let's, give, let's create adaptive procedures. Yeah. Let's create procedures that give folks the ability to use their brain what we hire them for right? in, in the utility space in general. You know, most of, most of these folks, uh, they're hired. They go through years and years and years of apprenticeship. Uh, they go through, uh, once, once, once a, a power generator or utility gets their hands on them, they go through years of training and to, to do all of this stuff and to be creative and thinking. And then we throw them into the work environment and say, forget all of that and just follow this. And it just seems to not work out that well. So I I really, I really appreciate your point because I've seen several organizations starting to go down this path, kind of even beyond the regulator. The regulator is obviously a very important part of this process, uh, becoming more performance-based. And we're starting to see that even quite a bit here with with OSHA. Uh, And more particular to me is ADOSH, the Arizona Department of Occupational Safety and Health, in which, which those regulations are becoming much more performance-based. But mm-hmm. we're seeing those, those organizations that are, that are thinking in this direction of going, okay, um, prescriptive doesn't work because it does change. Things are constantly changing. You know, a power plant, as an example, is a very dynamic environment, right? And especially when you're dealing with a power plant that might be 100 years old uh, and you have these operators that, that know that plant better than anyone else could ever know it. Obviously, way better than I could ever know it. Uh, they can listen to a pump and it makes a certain wine and they know you have to hit it with a hammer and spit on it to make it work. And that's just how that, how that happens, right? You can't capture that in a procedure. You can't capture that there. Uh, so giving folks the ability to create uh, almost within side of a set of guardrails is what I've seen it kind of created kind of with rubble strips and guardrails going, okay, you might be getting a little too far out of the box here. You might want to might want to slow yeah, it in a little bit. It's a pretty pretty effective process. Yeah, that's the. It's interesting you bring up that guardrail um, and and rumble strip metaphor because mm-hmm. um, last year I, I became aware of a new a new term that had come out in the science through a paper that David Proven had uh, published, um, in, included Drew Ray and, and and Sydney Decker and David Woods, and it was this term guided adaptability. Mm. Um, and I know, I think Sydney has talked about it in terms of freedom in a frame. So the, the metaphor that I came up with personally was when you go to the bowling alley and you have the, the railings up, you know, what that's doing is ensuring that you will definitely be successful in terms of knocking pins down, at least on your first bowl. 
it's, it's impossible to fail. So in a way, it's, it's about creating a system where you can choose where you bowl, you know, what, where you start, what angle you bowl at. But we're going to make sure that you can be successful by, by having these guardrails up. But I think the way you've described it as maybe starting off with a rumble strip is a little bit like, um, I don't know if it's the same in the US, but in the UK on, on the motorway or what you would call the freeway, on the hard shoulder, um, that line is actually um, kind of grooved so that you, if, you, if you go over it, you get like a rat. Yep. And obviously another, another two meters away, there is, a, there is a barrier. So yeah, I think that's a great metaphor because what you're doing is you're saying, look, we're going to warn you if you're going a bit too far, but actually what we want to do is give you freedom to decide what you think is the best way to do this work because you are the expert. Yeah. We're just going to give you a freedom, freedom in a frame. Yeah, exactly. And I've, I've, I've heard that from, from Sydney, uh, that freedom in a frame. And I love that. And exactly. It's, it's exactly that it's finding that, um, it's, it's finding that sweet spot almost between rules and autonomy, right? It's really finding what that sweet spot looks like. And that's probably going to vary from process to process, from document to document, from task to task, right? As we said, when we have those, those big complex things that we work on, we have to find a way to shine a big spotlight on them. As, as, as Todd says, right? We need to shine a spotlight on complexity. Um, and for me, a lot of it is this, as I see organizations that are kind of maturing in, in this, this better view of safety. Cause I, I get in trouble for saying new view hop, you know, cause it's, yeah. we kind of use them interchangeably <laughs> and they're all a little different. So I'll just say, I'll just say better. I'll just stick with better. <laughs> as folks start to go down this, this safety better path. <laughs> <laughs> and we start to begin to declutter our processes. Um, what we really find is that the stuff that really matters, we keep, right? Kind of back to that point of those, those prescriptive areas where we need to be prescriptive. If you ask yeah. the folks that actually have to use that process, what to keep, they'll tell you what's really important to them. They'll tell you the stuff that they lean on to not die. right? And the rest of it, they'll encourage you to, to swiftly throw in the trash can. Right. So I, I think it's even back to that. It's back, even coming back full circle, once again, to learning is that as we go down this process, the best folks to tell us what those areas look like are probably the folks that actually use the process, right? It's the folks that actually do. It's actually that person that, that has to listen for that whining pump and needs to hit it with a hammer and spin on it. Right? It's that person yeah. that needs to help us write that. And, and, and just to pick up on that, human senses, we often don't actually record them as a control measure. No. In, our, in our risk management processes, but actually, and obviously the human senses and, and the expertise around them comes from experience. Mm. But when I used to do um, risk management training um, to, to operational managers and supervisors, I would say, you know, we, we don't record human senses, but actually it's an incredibly important part of the, of the system. You know, that, that doesn't smell right. That doesn't sound right. You need to have expertise to be able to, to make those judgments. Um, and that's why, and, and, and it is the people who do the work who are the experts. The safety person cannot come in and, and tell you that that's not right because we don't know. No. We don't no. generally. No, and that's the, exactly, exactly to your point is that we, we don't, right? We, we don't know and we, we can never know. Um, you know, even I, I have this conversation with, uh, with leaders a lot of times because they've usually, they've usually made their way into leadership by being really good at whatever the folks they're now leading are doing, right? And they forget that they're no longer doing that, right? So even with those years of experience, you're no, you're no longer in the thick of it, 
So even as a safety person that might've been around and seen things, you know, this kind of old crusty hundred year old safety person that's been around and seen everything, you still, you, you don't know, right? You just, you just don't know. And you really can't know. So you have to lean on that, on that local expertise. You have to lean on that person that actually does that task. If you want to know how to do X, Y, Z, you should probably ask the person that does X, Y, Z every single day of their life. Because they're going to know how it really happens. They're going to know the tips and tricks. They're going to know all the little pieces. Um, they're going to have all those senses developed that you that you just mentioned, which you just kind of blew my mind a little bit because that was a part that I wasn't even thinking about. So that's that's awesome. <laughs> but yeah, you, you have to lean on those people that know, those that actually do, because I don't actually do. That's dumb. Yeah. <laughs> what we're there to do. I mean, I like, I know you're friends with uh, James McPherson. Mm-hmm. He's, um, he's a very strong advocate of, you know, we are here to facilitate, facilitate a conversation, basically. Yeah. We're, what, yeah. we, what we can bring is essentially thought processes and perhaps some, some sort of physical processes for thinking to help make things better. Our job exactly. isn't to actually necessarily come up with the ideas as to what makes, what's going to make this better. It's to provide a, you know, a, a facilitation process yeah. that helps us, or that helps the experts to work out what is best. Yeah. That's what I, we do. I think I think that's a spot on because uh, even before you mentioned that, that's that's where that's where my brain goes is facilitator. Right, it, yeah. instantly as as a safety professional, we're facilitators. Um, and it's really driving towards that process of learning, right? It's really driving yeah. towards it. I, I love, I love the way that Decker puts it. Uh, when I'd had him on, uh, he had mentioned this question. Mm-hmm. And it, if you just go out as a safety professional and ask the workforce, what is the absolute stupidest thing that we make you do every single day to work here? You're facilitating a very great conversation on how to fix some things. It might not, a lot of it's not going to be safety related. Right. A lot of it's not going to be, but you're going to make things better. And in the end of the day, better is the goal. Right. General betterment within the organization. Um, Question that they'll have never been asked before. Right. Right. And and, um, and I know it's become very vogue to talk about asking rather than telling. Mm -hmm. But it is so true. You know, our job is to ask questions, not to give answers. We're helping people work out the answer for themselves. If you look up the Latin root of the word facilitation, it means to make things easy. And that's what we're here to do. We're, we're We're here to make things easy. Exactly. Exactly. You know, I think that's, that's a lot of where we go next is, is, is this general evolution of the safety practitioner and where that goes. Um, for me, uh, Without trying to open up, I know we're getting towards the end of our time here. Without opening up an entire, new, entirely new can of worms, um, <laughs> as we go down this path of doing things a little differently, I find that other safety practitioners are the hardest sell. They're the yeah. hardest. There's there's obviously a lot of sunk cost here for, for them. There's there's a lot invested. <laughs> there's been years of standing in front of a uh, in front of a triangle talking about zero and putting up banners and posters. So I find that leaders get on board much faster. Uh, than other safety professionals because leaders are looking at us going, well, I've been trying to tell you idiots this for years. <laughs> right? <laughs> this is what we've been saying for years. Um, what do you, uh, you know, as we mentioned, um, what, what would you, uh, what, what would be some advice for those safety practitioners out there? What would you encourage them uh, to maybe do or change or maybe think a little differently? Is there any advice you'd give to the safety practitioners that are just starting down this journey of starting to learn about hop or the new view or, or any of this stuff? 
I think the number one skill that's needed of anybody that considers themselves or wants to consider themselves a safety practitioner or a safety professional, whatever it may be, is curiosity. Mm. Curiosity is is so crucial and you can't learn without being curious. Um, Good friend, Andy White, who I think you've had on the pod, um, he talks about being a curious explorer. And I think he can get away with it because he's worked in Antarctica. Yeah. Um, I can't. <laughs> um, that is what it is. Your your job is to is to be curious. But the, the the important caveat that comes along with that is to be curious without judgment. Yeah. And and it's really difficult for humans generally to to do that to be curious and to not judge in that curiosity. You know, we are we're all susceptible to the fundamental attribution error of judging someone's behaviour based on who they are, not the context that's driving their behaviour. The exact great example I like to use is when you're walking along the street and someone pushes past you, your automatic reaction is that they're a bad person. But maybe they're they're late for the labor of their, you know, their, their partners in labor and they're late for the to the hospital, something like that. But if you push past them, you know why you've done it. And therefore you can rationalize your own behavior. So when when we're curious, we need to be curious without judgment. And it's it's a fight we'll have to we'll have to make for the rest of our lives, all of us, because it's it's natural as humans to judge, right? Yeah. But if we want if we want the the core purpose of safety to be about facilitating learning, then we have to be curious. And it's something I've only learned fairly recently as an explicit need. But I would my my I would encourage anyone who's getting into this world to just be curious. That's huge. Yeah, absolutely. I I, I have nothing to add to that because you're spot on. (laughs) (laughs) You you don't have to say the word risk or hazard or accident or injury because that all comes later. Just be curious. Yeah. And especially when it comes to human performance. Yeah. Because as you said, right at the start, people do things that make sense to them. And personally, I'm fascinated by the idea of learning why it makes sense to people to do what they do. Exactly. Exactly. And it, it's just that mindset. It's shifting that mindset, right? I've, I've found that uh, in, in organizations, we often start from a place of um, kind of, kind of guilty until proven innocent, when, especially when we have bad things happen. And so much of that shift that I've seen in, in these organizations, as we go down this path of, of a few years of maturing into this, right? Is that you, you hear them start off these, these learning teams, they start off these post-event learning sessions with exactly what you just said. I, I just heard it a couple of months ago um, in one of these sessions uh, with a pretty significant injury. A person had, had some, some significant injuries. Uh, and they started with, with that exact statement was that this made total sense to this person. Our job is not to judge this person. Our job is to find out why it made sense. Mm-hmm. That's where it's all at. And because because sense making is inherent inextricably linked to context, mm. um, that the you know if you I would actually advocate you know when you're writing an incident report, even though I wouldn't even call it an incident, but when you're writing a report of an event, I would actually you know how you know you typically have headings like factual information and findings and God forbid root causes, and I would actually start on context sense making. Those should be the opening parts of a report. What was the context so that people understand that? 
and then sense making. Why did it make sense to people to yeah. do that based on the context? Yeah. And the context would be the longest part of the report. Exactly. Yeah, I love it. I love it. So that's a really good takeaway for folks out there listening as they start to change and adapt their their incident investigation. Got to say it with a, a little bit of a deep tone there. Those processes. Hopefully, they're moving towards a little bit. I'm, I like warm and fuzzy, man. I, I like to move away from those words. I don't. I don't like incident investigation. I think it sounds a little. It's I don't know. It, it's off putting right out of the gate. Yeah, <laughs> like, I, mean, I, I, I want nothing to do with that process. <laughs> The judicial term. Like, okay. we're, we're not. We're not police officers. We're not law enforcement. Our job is to help organisations learn. Why on earth would we use words like investigation and incident? Right. I'd rather just talk about events and learning. Yeah. Or or we use the. Uh, we how dare we use the word accident? Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there's there's. I've I've been stopped and corrected before that. There's yeah. no such thing as an accident. Well, the, the funny thing about the word accident is that people may use that word, and you know, we know what an accident means. It means something happened that people didn't intend to happen. It didn't but then we blame and punish the people involved, even though we've described it as an accident. Exactly. Well, that that's why you see so many of those organizations shift away from that term. Right? It's not an accident. It's an incident. Because all yeah. incidents are preventable. <laughs> it just makes you kind of it's i can feel the migraine starting right now even just bringing it back up talking about some, some. I, I, I like some people describe rather than say accident they'll just call it an operational surprise yeah yeah but what i like about that language is that it's non-judicial it's it's non-pejorative it's just it, and, and that's what i advocate for is a, as a complete neutralization of safety yeah. vocabulary we should be able every single word in our vocabulary as a profession and decide does that create a perception of pejorativeness or or some kind of judicial metaphor if it does get rid of it sure i've I've found um, i've I've spent a lot of time uh doing focus groups in organizations or at least starting to uh, to to facilitate focus groups and, and kind of allowing um, frontline employees to facilitate focus groups. It's a whole nother conversation. Um, but what I found with so many of these, um, as you really kind of dig into some of the um, kind of feelings and perceptions at the point you're into organizations, is that words matter and they matter a lot, right? Mm-hmm. The words that we use matter a lot. Um, and, and, uh, I've even seen organizations go as far as to develop lists of safety trigger words that were to be avoided at all costs, um, such as the term OSHA recordable, because it becomes so fluent to just say, is this an OSHA recordable rather than saying, is the person okay? Right? What do they need? Right? It, it would start right out of the gate with, is this a recordable? How do we manage this recordable? Or to your, to your point, you know, we need to begin this investigation rather than, well, you know, this, this surprise, taking a look at the surprise or this unexpected operational outcome, you know, whatever, whatever we want to call it. That's, that's not that <laughs> because they do, it does matter a lot because even if you have the warmest, fuzziest process that's, that's in tune with, with everything that we're talking about and you, you really have the principles applied well, and you're really there when you start out the conversation with, we're here to investigate, it just starts bad. Because I, I just, again, trying to put myself in, in those positions. Um, we're humans and we're going to go, no, you're not. I'm leaving. Bye. You know, I'm going to shut up and yeah. I'm going to put up a wall and I'm not going to talk to you. 
Well, there's, there's two important metrics in, in learning from other people, two important variables. One is their ability to help you. The other is their willingness to help you. Yeah. And most of the time, people are able to help you. Right. But how you prime the conversation will determine how willing they are to help you. Right. Um, and obviously, if you want to learn, you've got to have their willingness because otherwise they're not going to share what you need them to share. So I think this is where we can learn from um, sciences like social psychology and mm -hmm. concepts like priming and framing, how you prime a conversation, not just in terms of your body language and your general kind of uh, general language, but the specific words you use can prime what's going to happen next or can frame what's going to happen next. And you've got to be so, so careful if your job is to really get into the depths of this person's brain and learn why it made sense to them to do what they did, because they probably don't even know in some cases right. what, why it sense to them. Your job is to try and help them, but you're not going to do that if you prime and frame the conversation using language, which is going to reduce their willingness to be involved. Right. Right. Well, it, it is, it's exactly that. I, I, kind of similar to safety culture. There's, we throw this word trust around a lot. Yeah. Right. And, and I've almost shied away from trust over the past year or so. And, and I just throw around the fact that we need to create environments in which honesty is possible because mm -hmm. I, I I'm, when I just think of myself, um, I'm not, I'm, I don't think I could ever trust a corporation. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I could trust the bank. Right. I don't, I don't think I'm, I'm just not, I'm not going to trust my government. I'm not going to trust the bank. I'm, I'm just not going to trust any of those things. Right. At least not fully. Right. But so our job, as we kind of go down that path is how do we create an environment in which folks can be honest, right. In which people can be brutally honest with us and we can get in, you know, we could go down that path of psychological safety and kind of all this different stuff, uh, which we won't because we're pretty much, I think we're over time, <laughs> but um, I think it's so important to, to, to create that environment in which people can say those things that are usually hard for people to say. Right. Yeah. And, and it's even back to some of the hot principles, you know, the way we react matters and it matters a lot. Right. So I think that's, that's one of the more important pieces that we can pull out of that is when someone brings you something, even if it's not post event, right. And we can say, you know, this is, you think that's bad. Let me show you this. <laughs> you, you, you think, you think that's awful. Uh, he only cut off a finger. I almost died over here the other day. Let me, let me show you, let me show you this meat grinder, you know, um, to be able to have those conversations without the normal organizational response of, of hair on fire, head exploding, you know, type of thing is super important as we go down that path. Right. I think, I think that's probably a good, a good place to bring in what I think is a, is a really key point here. And, and perhaps that's where, I don't know if you maybe want to want to wrap it up there, but yeah. um, I, I always see, increasingly that a safety function within organizations it can bring in um, concepts like psychological safety into the organization where it might not necessarily make it in through any other avenue yeah. so marketing's not going to bring it in sales isn't going to bring it in operations isn't going to bring it in procurement's not going to bring it in hr probably isn't even going to bring it in in most organizations no. so there's an opportunity for the safety function to bring in thoughts ideas concepts that are much broader than just safety you know and and bring it into management bring it into the the board and say look if we want to be a successful organization we need we need psychological safety and obviously there's lots of ways to implement that and, and it's not as simple as a program but we have the opportunity to bring things in to the organization that are much bigger than our traditional scope yeah, and I, I love that point in, because we see that manifest all the time. Safety is often the catalyst, 
right? It, well, might, it might be the reasoning behind. And even with, uh, with, with human and organizational performance, I think is a great example of that, that it's, we, we bring it in under, under the disguise of safety a lot of times. And then as soon as you kind of, you kind of pull off the, uh, put, pull off the sheet and show everybody human and organizational performance, just about everyone around the table is going, oh, I could totally see how that would work in the warehouse. That would be great over here. You know, oh, uh, yeah, I, that, we need that over here in IT. That would be great. No, I don't care about the safety crap. We need, we need that for performance. That's awesome. That'll work really, really well. So to your point, I mean, I think, I think it is a really great opportunity uh, for, for safety professionals to bring in all of those different kind of forward-looking concepts. I think it's, it's awesome. It's awesome. So before, before we hang up here, how can people find you? How can people get a hold of you? All that kind of stuff. Do you want people to get a hold of you? I guess is a better question. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I'm, I'm job hunting right now. So absolutely. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm on LinkedIn, fairly active. Um, if you just uh, search my name, you, you should find me eventually. Um, also on Twitter, um, you can find me through there pretty easily as well. I've got a few hashtags in my, in my uh, bio, so it's pretty easy to get. You just put safety next to my name. Um, and yeah, just generally, if you're ever in the UK, um, a lot of your listeners, I assume, are, are, are American-based. Uh, yeah, hit me You'd up. Be surprised. We'll go, <laughs> we'll go for a beer and we'll, we'll nerd out. <laughs> You'd, you'd be surprised. I actually, uh, it's, it's, uh, most of my listeners are, are my, uh, are my, my Brisbane friends. That's, oh, about, okay. half, that's about half of my listeners. Oh, <laughs> so they're, they're Australian brothers and sisters. Yeah. Urban Utilities gang. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so big shout out to you guys. You, you, you all can hear me. <laughs> it's about split, split half and half, honestly. Yeah. Well, that's, that's the beauty of the, the modern world, isn't it? You can communicate with anybody anywhere, anytime. It's absolutely excellent. Yeah. And I'll, I'll link, uh, I'll put your link to your LinkedIn in the show notes and, and all that stuff as well. Just, uh, just search Adam Johns, not John Adams. Cause I made that, that my, <laughs> my brain transposed those as well. Yeah. I'm not a former U S president. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, good deal, my friend. I greatly appreciate you coming on and hanging out. Thanks for having me. It's been an honor. Absolutely. Yeah. Da, 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 da. No, just kidding. Not definitely not a U.S. president, but Super cool and probably cooler than most U.S. presidents, I would say. I bet it would be a lot more fun hanging out with Adam Johns than it would be to hang out with that stuffy type. So this was a blast. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. I can't wait to get Adam back on and talk more. He's just, just full of amazing, great stuff. I really love this conversation. I know you did, too. Let me know what you think about it. Like it, love it, hate it, got to have more of it. I know the answer. I already know. But you can always send me an email, thehopnerd at gmail.com or sam at thehopnerd.com. Make sure you tune into all that stuff that we were talking about. Again, it helps us bring you amazing, super neat content like this on a regular basis. So that's all I've got. I'm out of here. I hope you enjoyed it. Hit me up. Let's have that conversation. You know that I believe through that conversation is how we make this world a better place to work. And I'm starting to believe it's just how we make the world a better place period. So that's all I've got. Sam Goodman, the hot nerd signing off. (gasps) Bye everybody. Bye. The Hop Nerd Podcast is brought to you by Hop University. Head on over to hopuniversity.org. That's hopuniversity.org.
org. We offer on-demand and in-person hop training, speaking engagements, one-on-one coaching for safety professionals, and consultation to organizations for all things safety better. Again, head over to hopuniversity.org.